Good evening. This is Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio, and we're glad you're joining us. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers, and we invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. We have a returning guest tonight who will be introduced in just a bit. And together we'll be ready to take your calls and discuss birds with you. So let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So we'll start off with a recap of last month's conservation tip. Remember, conservation tips are completely voluntary. Just tips of things you can do to help nature, help birds, and maybe even help yourself. And this one I think is is a lot of fun. This one we're recapping from last month is to observe nature from a blind, what the Europeans call a hide. And that's a, you know, like a pop-up ground blind. And so there's some basic ones that are about 60 bucks and the price goes up from there. There's some really jazzy ones for about double that or maybe a little more than double. Um, But you can place these in your yard, sneak in them, maybe at first light, uh, if you have it near a feeder, near a bird bath. And I I don't mean right up on top of these things. I'm talking many yards away. You're going to have binoculars with you. Um, But they're not going to see you. And that's the really neat thing is um, these are packable. They're like a a tent, but way easier to set up. Um, Hunters use them. and, and, And they have some of the best observations of nature because they're sitting still they're hidden in these blinds and they get to see just the coolest stuff so um, it'd be a lot it'd be really neat I think to put one near an animal carcass you know if you uh, you know raise cattle and unfortunately one might perish um, set one up near it and you might see carnivores coming in scavengers coming in it'd be neat to see a caracara come in Bald eagles will feed on dead stuff, dead animals, so never know what's going to fly in and eat on that carcass would be pretty cool to see. But in your backyard, you can do it near your bird bath or the edge of the woods. Um, and, and you know, you, you only need a few things in there because really you're going to keep really still and quiet. You want something to sit on like a stool. Certainly nothing squeaky. So test it out. Make sure it doesn't move. Uh, when you move, it doesn't squeak or make noises. That That's not going to help you. Have your binoculars and a camera and a water bottle. And if it's cold outside, bring a blanket. Um, one thing you don't want to take in there with you is a full bladder. So consider where you are and what options you have to eliminate that full bladder. So you might just take little sips of water so you don't fill up your bladder and definitely clean out your bladder before you sit in there because you you want to be in there for a few hours and you don't want the mother nature knocking when you when you're seeing something really cool so um yeah there there's some really neat ones that have a what's called a surround view it's like a 270 degree one-way see-through wall some of these more expensive blinds and they're breathable. They keep out the flies and the mosquitoes. They, they're they not best in high winds or heavy rain because high winds, 
the fabric starts flapping and then you're obvious so don't do it in high winds and they're for the most part um, waterproof except if it's really heavy rain so a light drizzle is fine um, but the reason I mentioned this is you can really learn behaviors from wildlife a lot better by doing this because you, you're not distracted with other people in the house or the TV's on or the phone's ringing um, you're just there to look at nature so uh, the idea is that you'll learn more about your your neighbors the feathered kind and maybe the furry kind um, and and advocate for these critters so um, so keep it at a distance keep quiet and get in there and see what you can see I think you'll be it'll be very rewarding so tonight we're profiling a medium-sized woodpecker found in the eastern two-thirds of the U.S., plus a smidgen of southern Canada. Uh, somewhat of a pioneer bioacoustician, Ben B. Coffey Jr. of Tennessee, summed it up best decades ago in the narration of one of his audio tapes by stating in his rich southern accent that the red-headed woodpecker is a mischievous chatterbox. I love that. So let's listen to the winter calls of the red-headed woodpecker to get a feel for what Mr. Coffee was talking about. So you can hear a couple individuals talking back and forth. Certainly one was a dominant caller, calling uh, individual in there. But I really like that mischievous chatterbox because in the winter I've we've had those in our backyard and they are just constantly making that noise. Um, and they're mischievous because if there's more than one, they're kind of flying in the canopy chasing each other and chasing other birds and, and doing their thing. And, and I call it winter call. That's not an official um, de description. I'm just using that because it's typically heard in the colder months. So during the, the warmer months, the breeding season, that near constant chattering is substituted for a different call by the red-headed red woodpecker, often referred to as the quirr call, since that's what it sounds like as heard here. Quirr, quirr. So that's what you'll hear in the warmer months. So spring and summer, you'll hear that. Same, same species, red-headed woodpecker, just has two different calls. The three prominent colors of this bird include snow white, jet black, and blood red. The males of all species of woodpeckers in the eastern U.S. have some amount of red on their head, but the red-headed woodpecker has an entire head of red as it's wearing a red hood. I guess the exception would be the, the three-toed woodpecker and the black-backed woodpecker. They don't have red on the head. Uh, when the 1800s ornithologist John James Audubon was asked to name the prettiest bird he observed in North America, he stated it was the red-headed woodpecker. There are some seasonal movements in this species which can include switching forest types, meaning a bird that might nest in an open pine forest in Arkansas could winter south in a bottomland hardwood forest in Louisiana. 
The sexes of this woodpecker are identical. We can't tell males from females through binoculars. Immature red-headed woodpeckers in their first seven or eight months of life have solid gray heads that slowly begin to molt to red feathers in midwinter. And by their first spring, these individuals have the entire red head of an adult. These woodpeckers eat a variety of things found on trees, including insects, spiders, and fruit when in season. They're also proficient at fly catching for aerial insects during the warmer months in an open stand where trees are well spaced, giving this bird plenty of space to chase tasty in insects on the wing. This woodpecker nests in dead limbs of a live tree or more often in the thick trunk of a fully dead tree, which is also known as a snag. To see a photo of an adult red-headed woodpecker snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Yeah, I really like that bird. It is striking. Let's see. We are ready to move on to our guest. And what we're going to do is she's a returning guest. She, she had so much information that I wanted to talk about when she was here as a phone and guest back in the spring that we didn't cover it all. So I've asked her to come back, and she's been gracious to say yes. And what we're going to do right now is play her bio from May 2023 when she was on the air. And, and, and that way we don't have to redo that. But the, the most important part of it is we're going to also hear her define an important term that we're going to listen to throughout the show, an ectosymbiont. So let's listen to Dr. Alex Matthews, and here she is. Okay, tonight I'm excited to introduce our phone-in guest. She's our first guest we've ever had from Arkansas. How about that? So Alex Matthews is going to come on the air here in a second. Originally from North Little Rock, Arkansas, and she's always been interested in birds. And she was an undergrad student at Rhodes College in Memphis. And she's been studying birds and a variety of other symbionts for about a decade. So she's going to explain what that means here in a minute. She's currently a doctoral candidate of molecular biosciences at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro, Arkansas. She's studying the ecology and evolution of mites, that live on the feathers of birds, specifically of warblers. So, Alex Matthews, are you there? Yes. Great. How's it going, Cliff? <laughs> Doing well. How are you? Pretty good. good. Thank you. So, Happy to be here. Great. So, you and I have known each other for several years, and I had to have you on because you study such an interesting part of, the, of a bird's life. You're studying the ectoparasites or ectosymbionts. I'll let you define those here in, in a minute. But I think it's just fascinating. You know, there, there are these hitchhikers on birds that we don't see unless maybe with a special lens or close-up view or electron microscope in some cases, but birds are covered sometimes in these mites and lice and things, so we're going to talk about that tonight. So before you give a brief biosketch, why don't you tell us a little bit about what an ectosymbiont is and an ectoparasite? Yeah, so um, an, an ectosymbiont is kind of an all-encompassing term for any smaller organism that lives on a larger organism and depends on that larger organism for its survival or reproduction or some important part of its life. And so symbionts can either be parasites in which they are causing harm to their host 
or they can be mutualists where they are actually providing a service to their host, benefiting their host, or they can be commensals, which are neither harming nor helping their host in any way that we can measure. But a lot of times those categorizations are sometimes hard to put symbionts into those three categories, Mm -hmm. and so they may shift between categories where under some contexts they're parasitic and in other contexts they're mutualists or commensals or something. But in front of the term ectosymbiont just means that they're living on the outside of the host Mm -hmm. versus endosymbionts, which are living on the inside of hosts. When you're defining ectoparasite, I was thinking, gosh, I've got two teenagers. That sounds pretty familiar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's... They're sucking my blood dry or my pocketbook. So, yeah. So, Alex, tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I introduced you as, as our first guest from Arkansas, but tell us more about you and where you're born, where you've lived, and went to school, hobbies, all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So, like you said, I, I was born and raised in North Little Rock, Arkansas. So, that's just on the other side of the river from Little Rock. And most of my family still lives in that general area. My brother actually lives in the house we grew up in. And then I went to undergraduate in Memphis, Tennessee at Rhodes College and got my degree in environmental sciences. And I have a minor in economics as well. So there, mm. there's a lot of parallels between ecology and economics that I kind of dabbled in in my undergraduate work. And then I moved to Jonesboro where I got my, Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I got my master's degree in biological sciences, and I started studying mites. And then after my master's, I moved to Nacogdoches, where I got to meet you and all the other lovely people in in Nacogdoches. Mm -hmm. And then I worked at UT Tyler as a laboratory manager for a symbiosis lab, but it was focused, the lab was focused on ant symbioses, so fungus farming ants, which I can talk about as well later if you want me to. And now I'm back in Jonesboro working on my working on finishing my PhD in molecular biosciences and studying feather mites again on birds and some of my hobbies. So I do really enjoy bird watching. It's not just something that I study, but that I actually like to to do. Yeah. Along with that, like hiking and bicycling, and I've also recently gotten into running. And I am a lifelong tap dancer, which is kind of a kind of tap fun. dancer. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, so that was when we had Alex on in May of 2023, and 10 months later, I'm very happy to have Alex back, and is the real Alex there? Yes. There you are. I'm here. Great. So what do you think, listening to yourself? Oh, it's super weird. Well, what's really changed, we have to tell people that you finished yeah. your PhD since we yeah. talked to you last. You did your defense, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, two weeks ago. So, so that is that's probably the biggest, biggest change. Yeah, that's um, a huge one, and and, <laughs> and so great. I'm I'm just so proud to know you, and that you know you were just a young whippersnapper, and now you're a now you're a doctor. How about that? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks for coming back on, and uh, yep. So you're now. You were our first guest in from Arkansas. You're still from there originally, but now. Yeah. You're our first guest airing from Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're in Memphis, right? Fun. Yeah, I am. I am back. Uh, I've kind of done. I've kind of migrated back twice. Um, once to, to back to Jonesboro to to finish my to do my two graduate degrees, and now 
I've migrated back to Memphis um, at Rhodes College. I'm teaching uh, biology here. Um, I started last or in the fall, and and I'm I'm teaching again this this spring. I, I'm actually teaching ornithology this awesome. spring. Awesome, and that that's a, that's a neat circle. So you took it when you were in your 20s, and now you're teaching it to the next generation. That's right. Of, yeah, of biologists. Really, yeah, it's that's really, really cool. cool. It's, yeah, it's pretty. It's it's a pretty cool opportunity to, to get to do that. And, and you were telling me earlier that you have a student that knew you were um, going to be on the air, a student in Tennessee. Uh, tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, so I we had our uh, ornithology lab yesterday, mm-hmm. um, and my, one of my students came up to me, and she said that her dad is a uh, long-time bird calls listener, and I guess I guess maybe he heard a preview for this this month's show and uh he was he was excited or, or mentioned that that her professor which is me uh that was going to be on the show this week so that was that was kind of fun uh you know having that connection that's cool and we found out his name is ricky so ricky big shout out to you if you're <laughs> if you're listening i hope you are and, and that your daughter's doing well under the tutelage of dr matthew so <laughs> That's pretty neat. Yes, That's indeed. so. So he he told someone, well, his daughter in another state that he knew you were going to be on the air. So it's, it's anyway, it's a small world. So really small world. Yeah. So yeah. thank thanks to Ricky for reaching out and and uh, listening to the show and and ha- and putting a daughter through college to take a class from you. That's man. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> So, so let's get into ectoparasites and ectosymbionts, um, feather mites, and I, you know I'm saying M I T E S. It might sound like I'm saying M I C E S, but we're talking about feather mites and nest mites with a T in there. Um, so, Alex, tell us why why should we care about parasites? Yeah, so this is this is a really good question, and and I like I like kind of starting starting the interview off like this because. A lot of people, you know, when they hear parasite, they think, oh, why should I care about that? That, you know, parasites are bad. They have this really bad reputation. Um, and and that's, that's mostly um, because people think, okay, parasites are going to harm humans. Um, but in reality, most parasites have no potential to really harm humans. There's, there's a really low uh, number of parasites that have some, like, a zoonotic potential, um, so shifting from wildlife to, to humans. But um, so they, instead of, you know, having this really bad impact on or really negative impact on their host, they they actually play, play a really important role in ecosystems. Mm. Um, so one particularly important aspect of parasites is that they can regulate um, the population sizes of, of hosts. So if some... Species may have like an ex- explosive increase in their population size and become pests, um, especially in the case of invasive species. Parasites help to kind of keep those numbers down in in the in those hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also play a really big role in food webs. So they they are um, sort of this main binding feature between organisms that that um, you know from from plants to um, all the way up to the top of trophic levels so that they're kind of this interconnected web Um, they kind of hold that food web together Um, so 
you know, those are two really big reasons. Um, but also just we don't know a lot about parasites. Um, so we don't really know the impact they have on their hosts in a lot of cases. Some, sometimes we assume that they have a negative impact, but they may actually not. Um, so it's kind of hard to, to, to know what to do about them if we don't understand their biology. Um, and there's a really big push right now to actually add parasites to um, conservation programs um, to try to protect parasites and other symbionts um, just because we're learning more about them. We're learning about their importance in ecosystems and, mm. and their ability to stabilize um, ecosystems and keep, keep everything sort of in check. And, you know, they, they may also be an indicator if ecosystems are out of balance, if, you know, one parasite species increases a lot, they, that may be an indication that something else is wrong in the ecosystem. So hmm. they, they may kind of be a canary in the coal mine um, in some instances. So people are starting to really pay attention to them and, and start starting to see like, oh, we should, we should actually be protecting these species rather than trying to get rid of them. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool to be adjacent to, to those kind of studies right now with, with um, the study of bird mites and, and other ectosymbionts. Hmm. So if there was ever such a thing as a parasite fan club, you sound like you'd be the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, it, and if you made T-shirts saying, you know, parasite fan club, I don't know that you'd get a lot of takers, would you? I mean, I hate to say it. we're gonna It's an uphill battle to convince everybody that parasites are good or might be good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And, and I, I think... The more the more people understand about them, maybe the the closer they'll be to to buying a parasite fan club T-shirt. Yeah. See on the back, you could put front says parasite fan club, and on the back you say they might be good, but spelled M I T E. How about that? Yes, that's right. Anytime, yeah, I'd wear I that. Incorporate. Yeah. yeah, I'd wear that. Anytime we can put a pun in there. Yeah. Those that, that'll sell. Awesome. So you you did a lot of field work for your study. And I'm, I, that's always the funnest part. As biologists, we always want to be out in the woods or out yeah. in the field, out in the prairies, wherever, maybe in the swamps. I know you were in swampy conditions on occasion, but uh-huh. um, while you were out, out there, tell us one of your more is- interesting experiences. Maybe it was a weather event or people you encountered or an unusual bird or, or an interesting ectoparasite. So think about that for a second and and yeah. give us that experience and describe that. Yeah, so I, I like you said, I, I have done a, a, a lot of a lot of field work in a lot of different places. I've because I've worked with um, warblers mostly. I've gotten the chance to to, to be in a lot of different habitats. Um, so I, it's it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun. But in in terms of one of the most interesting things. This is probably a, this is probably one of the hardest questions to answer, um, but I think that one of my favorite times in the field um, was with a was with was related to this unusual bird that we encountered. Mm. Um, it was a female prosonotary warbler that um, was actually singing. So this is a, you know, a really rare behavior for female birds to, like, to sing. Um, so female song is, is, is really unusual and, and not, not very well documented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was watching 
this I was checking nest boxes um, for for a separate project. Um, so we we had nest boxes for personitary warblers set out kind of in various places in in this bottom line hardwood forest in southern Arkansas. And uh, a female personitary warbler was acting pretty weird. And then all of a sudden, I, I was just kind of watching her flying around. Um, she was checking nest boxes and um, making some weird noises. And then she sat at the top of a tree and just started making this noise that was a song, um, very different from the from the male mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. But it was it was you know not just a not just a call it had it was long and and complex like a song mm. um and so we and we had uh, one of the one of my lab mates had said that he thought he heard a a female singing the year prior and so we kind of knew that maybe this weird behavior was happening but we hadn't we didn't have any documentation of it um but what we ended up doing was going back to that um same site, and we we caught her um, in a mist net, and then um, like measured her to make sure she was a female, mm-hmm. and and kind of doc- uh, monitored those nest boxes later. And what we figured out, you know, we spent a couple days watching her and monitoring her behavior, and what we figured out is that she was um, stealing a a male from another female, so she was kind of she was basically stealing a mate and mm. um uh, uh she was successful in stealing the mate and they they had another nest but um i it it seems like that this behavior is more common than than we anticipated yeah. and i've seen it i i've uh documented it a couple more times in different sites and a couple of our collaborators have seen it too so i don't know if it's you know partially genetic or if there's something we're not sure what's going on but having a female singing is is um a pretty weird behavior that was really cool to to experience. That's neat. Um, yeah. Very neat. You're, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackelford. We have on the phone with us our guest, Alex Matthews from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And if you have a question for either of us, our number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. So you mentioned a couple things I wanted to follow up on um, in that answer you just gave me. You, you mentioned uh, habitat types, and and so do you have a favorite? Did you did you really like any part of the country or you know habitat type more than the others? Yeah, I I really do like bottomland hardwood forest, mm-hmm. like the flooded bottomland hardwood forest, um, where I where I did a lot of my my field work with prothonotaries. Um and it may just have to do with the amount of time that I've spent in there, but I, but it does, I do really like them. And, you know, they're really quiet yeah. um, places and the, the like you can, the, the songs of the birds just kind of bellow through the forest and it's, it's just really beautiful. But, um, so I really liked Bottomland Hardwood Forest, um, but I also liked my, I got to go um, to New Mexico and do some field sampling of some Western warblers that, mm-hmm. um, don't uh, or more southwestern warblers that don't breed we did you know that don't breed in the southeastern united states or or eastern united states so um we went out to collect try to collect mites from from those birds which in you know in new mexico it was largely semi-desert and kind of pine maybe mixed conifer forest Mm -hmm. um and and i really enjoyed those and i don't know if it's because it's you know different um, 
the most different from yeah. a flooded bottom line hardwood forest or you know maybe the lack of bugs that yeah. we encounter that that was that was nice too but um yeah and the, and the smells are different if you were in some pin, pinon yeah. pine that it smells really good when it gets heated up yeah, in the summer yeah, yeah, it was just it was just a really different experience, and I, I I really enjoyed my time out in the Southwest. Very cool. Yeah, yeah any, any any place other than a desk is is always a good place to be outdoors, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you mentioned something um, I'd like for you to describe for us. You mentioned the term misnetting, and I don't know that we've ever on this show describe what misnetting is it's the way you said you caught that female prothonotary warbler that sang are, are we going to call her taylor swift <laughs> how about that okay so so tell us how you caught taylor swift <laughs> yeah so um uh when we misnet uh birds we we primarily target capture them which um means that we set out a net for a specific individual bird or a specific species of bird um, and these mist nets, they're, they're also used in, um, for catching bats as well, so that they're multi, multi-purpose. But um, they basically look like a, a really thin volleyball net um, that kind of it's extended from almost the ground to, you know, it can be, it, they can be really tall, um, but ours, you know, as tall as, as tall as you can reach, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, or higher, um, but so it's it's a net that's strung out between two um, poles, and it's called a mist net because it's it's so the mesh is so thin that it's um, invisible to birds. Uh, and what we do for target capturing is set um, a speaker, one or two speakers on either side of the net, um, and we. We'll normally play, we're normally ta- target capturing males as opposed to females, so catching the females is a little trickier. Um, but normally we'll, we'll play um, the song or the call of the species that we're trying to capture, and it kind of gets them riled up, that whatever individual is in that territory, because they think that there's a, um, another male in their territory trying to, you know, steal their, their mate or something, and so they kind of get curious about what's happening and um, we sort of toggle the sound back and forth on either side of the net and they will eventually fly into it um, and get tangled up in that mesh um, and then we'll go kind of just extract them safely extract them out out of the net Um, but there's other other ways to capture birds as well Um, so passive netting is the other um, kind of another way to use mist nets you just set the nets out don't use any speaker sound or anything like that and just um, check the nets every um, you know 15 or 20 minutes or every some regular interval um, and go kind of extract the birds out of the nets um, to to measure them Um, but there's you know one of my lab mates also studies loggerhead shrikes and you don't use mist nets um, to catch Mm -hmm. loggerhead shrikes she uses these um, they're small little kind of walk-in traps um, that the bird just sort of walks in to try to get the bait that's in there and then the, the trap door closes and then they kind of get it get them out that way so is that a mouse is is the bait 
Yeah, a mouse mm-hmm. a mouse is, is typically the bait. Um, there's also like a bow net you can use um, that's sort of on a springboard um, with a with a bait, a mouse, usually a mouse bait in, in there. And um, the mouse is always safe. It's always protected. Right. Uh, he never, from, he never gets from, captured, right? He never gets captured. Yeah. yeah, he's in a in a cage inside of a cage, basically. Yeah. Now we should yeah. mention that that, that misnetting is highly regulated, and to do it, you have to be yeah. licensed by state and federal governments. And so, you know, if you yeah. got if you got your license in Arkansas, it doesn't transfer when you go over to Tennessee. So you have to right. have one for every yeah. state. So, I want yeah. to point that out that this isn't for everybody. And and to purchase a misnet, um, you know, that's not an easy feat either. You've got to show these license numbers so so if yeah, any, it's highly highly regulated yeah. and and everybody that um catches birds or handles birds in any way goes through training and safety you know safety measures to make sure you're prepared for um anything and and ensure that you're handling the the bird safely so right right yeah, and if, he, if people are interested in seeing it firsthand, of course, there's probably stuff on YouTube you can see videos. But if you want to see it in real life, there, you know, if you if you live near a nature center or a better a bird observatory, um, they often have field trips where you can participate in in mist netting. And by participate, you're pretty much just standing off to the side watching the banders do their work. But it's a great way to see things uh, right, you know, right there in front of you and in, in your hand. Um, so that's really good. So mist netting is, is a critical part of your job, and, and you had to schlep those things around and set them up every time, and then you, yeah. you, play, you, played, the, you played the Taylor Swift tape to get the, the prothonotary yeah. to come in. Um, yeah, I was thinking more about your, your female singing, you know, and I've, I think I've mentioned this in previous shows about delayed plumage maturation, and there's an old, old, it's a 100-something-year-old article about... Uh, a painted bunning that was green, all green, like a female, and they thought that um, that it was uh, uh, unusual for a female to sing. But they collected the bird, opened it up, and found it had testes, and they realized that that painted bunnings take two years to get the, the adult plumage on the males. So it was a first-year male that was doing the singing, but it looked like the, looked like the female. Well, so I'm thinking of warblers, and, of course, American redstart comes to mind as, as a warbler that takes a couple years to get its plumage but i'm not familiar with that with the prothonotary yeah prothonotaries i mean they're they are the males and the females look you know they're very similar um but there are enough differences uh, um to be able to tell them apart especially in the hand Mm -hmm. um and just by plumage but also by measure like several you know wing cord and um mass and right. um, females will have a, a brood patch um, as opposed as opposed to males but I don't think they go as far as I know they don't go through those that kind of multiple plumage stage like an American red start does. I don't so, think so you, you mentioned yeah. a word you might want to define a brood patch I bet there's listeners yeah. that don't know what that is yeah so um, I just I actually just got to talk about this in my class uh, last week um, brood patches so it's it's a temporary loss of the feathers on sort of the belly of female birds during the breeding season, um, and it it is basically a way to for for the heat to dissipate kind of directly from the skin to um, 
the eggs mm-hmm. as, as the females are incubating on the nest. Um, and so that was one indication that when we caught her, we took we collected her, uh, we took a blood sample as well um, to, to be able to sex her, but um, also looking at, you know, her wing cord, her overall color, her uh, mass, and she had that um, the brood patch, which is indicative of a, of a female bird as well. So that loss of, the loss of feathers on her belly, um, indicating she's either getting ready to um, lay eggs and, and incubate a nest or had, had just done so. Yeah, cool. Okay, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackelford. Our guest is Alex Matthews. She's phoning in. And if you want to phone in with a question for either of us, the number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. Okay, here's, here's a question I have for you. For those folks who monitor bird nest boxes like bluebird landlords, what should one do if they see a swarm of ectoparasites in the box, and what might those be? Yeah, so that that's a good question because um, I, I have actually seen those um, swarms of, of, of ectoparasites um, even on my personitary warbler nest boxes. Not very often, but, but it has happened a couple times. Um, but for people who have nest boxes on their properties and they, they see that, they're – there's unfortunately not a whole lot that can be done, um, especially if the box is already occupied. Um, but for the, um, you know, for the most part, you just kind of have to let it let it run its course, yeah. um, or do some mitigation once the nestlings have have left, have fledged. Um, but those are, if you see like a huge swarm of really tiny tiny um, mites, which those, if, it's, if it's like thousands of, of individuals, then mm-hmm. those are probably mites. Um, they could be um, nest mites. So there's, there's kind of two different, two different types of mites that, that, you, might, that you might have mm-hmm. um, in, <laughs> in those nest boxes. And, and one of them are just, um, they're called nest mites, and they, they pretty much are eating just the sort of the, the material the nesting material, mm-hmm. um, they, they may maybe, be on. Maybe dead, dead skin cells and feathers. and Yeah, dead, dead skin cells and like the, feathers. Yeah, the sheaths, the kind of sheaths of the feathers that yeah. are kind of sloughing off of the, the um, nestlings as they're growing in their feathers mm-hmm. and um, that kind of stuff. So they may be on top of the birds, but they're not actually consuming anything from them. Um, but there are, so, th- so that's one option. They could be nest mites. Um, the other option is that they could be um, kind of like generalist um, skin mites or, or, or blood feeding mites, mm-hmm. um, and and those are actually taking a blood meal from from the nestlings, but um, they don't need a, they don't take blood meals all that often. So there's there's usually having mites is um, especially those nest mites is not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's usually more problematic to try to mitigate it when the when the birds are nesting. So, right. you know, it would it's not recommended to use like diatomaceous earth or, or other chemical chemicals. sprays. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not recommended to do that, especially in an active nest, because that can be harmful to the to the nestlings and their their right. lungs and, and things like that. Um, but uh, you could you could once the once the nest is fledged or, or completed, they um, 
you know, they've left, you can take out the, you know, remove the nest from the box and then clean the box with like a bleach, like a water slash bleach solution, um, you know, a diluted bleach solution Mm -hmm. or something like that, um, and dry it all the way out and put it out in the sun to try to kill any any eggs that may be left over. Um, But sometimes the birds will take care of it themselves. So they, um, they have, there's, not a whole lot of research on this, but it's it's possible that birds or like the parents will put um, other things in nests tra- that that will kill off the mites or mm. kind of keep them in check. Um, so I've I've read about spider egg sacks that mm. can that birds will bring to the nest that maybe reduce um, the numbers of mites, but the but the, the other thing that birds will bring are um, like uh, pieces of plants, or some some type of some type of plant that produces like a a compound that acts as an insecticide. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's pretty. It, um, it I, you know I don't think there's a lot of research, or at least I'm not uh, sure of which plants have those sort of secondary compounds that mm-hmm. are acting like an insecticide. But um, the the adult birds will bring those things to the nest to try to like naturally remove or, or keep the keep the mites at bay um that's but, neat yeah so super yeah, neat it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty cool but there's also there's also blowfly um larvae that could be in nests which mm-hmm. are really bad for like they can burrow into the skin of the nestlings and that it's really it's really bad those are a bigger issue than the than the mites mm-hmm. um but those should you know if you can kind of sweep them out from from underneath the nest even in an active nest. Right, right, right. Better. Cool. Yeah. Okay, we have our first caller. Um, we have Clyde from Nacogdoches. Clyde, are you there? I am. Go ahead. Uh, I've been hearing a call uh, here in the uh, near the house, uh, near over near uh, Bright Coop, and I think it's probably a dove, but uh, it's uh, sounds like there's a couple of them, you know, block apart or something like that a kind of a almost a real soft bark and then a type sound there there are um of course you're probably familiar with the morning dove but in the last uh, few decades we've got eurasian collared doves and they sound something like this Yeah, that's the Eurasian collar dove, and I bet you that's um, what you're hearing because he's he's not something we grew up listening to. Right. Last year I saw one of the collar doves, uh, you know, fossicking around on the driveway looking for seeds or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Probably collar dove. Yeah. Okay. Not you know it's almost like an owl, but not quite. Yeah. Certainly does sound hoot hoot like. Like an owl, yeah. Okay. I thought, I thought that's what it was, maybe. But yeah. Okay. I I'd check with the expert. Great. Have a great day. Thank you, Clyde. Appreciate the call. You're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is eight hundred five five two eight five zero two. We have Alex Matthews on the line. If you want to ask her a question about ectosymbionts or mites, um, she's a, she's got about twelve minutes or so. So get on it. Call us. But in the meantime, I have questions. For her, um, you were talking about plumage. There's some words we've been using. I thought we'd maybe spend a moment on on plumage and molt. Can you tell us about molt in birds? Uh, 
and and why they do that? Yeah, so <clears throat> molt is when birds uh, kind of replace replace their feathers. Um, so they'll they'll grow new feathers at certain times of the year. Um, it, it it's really variable when birds molt. Um, it's but they have kind of as birds kind of have three big times in their life, um, especially uh, uh, migratory species. So they have you know three really big energetically expensive times. One the first one is reproduction. Um, so Reproducing, finding a mate, um, having a nest, you know, feeding your offspring, feeding nestlings and, and getting them to fledging is really um, hard to do uh, and takes a lot of energy. Um, so that's one big part of their life. The second big part is, is molt. Um, and so that's when they replace their feathers. They will grow new feathers. The, the, the feathers that you see are actually all dead structures. Um, and, and they get worn down, you know, just as, um, just through natural processes, just like um, our hair gets worn down or our nails or, or anything else. Um, so the feathers have to be replaced um, in order to, to keep them nice and, um, uh, you know, working for, for flight. Um, and so molt is another big, really energetically expensive uh, time in a bird's life, and then the last piece is if a bird is um, migratory, they they you know migration's a big a big energy um, hog as well. So so they kind of um, birds will kind of put uh, energy into those three things at different times of their life. But um, molt specifically is 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 what we've been talking about and replacing those feathers and growing new ones, um, and sometimes that ends up with a bird looking completely different, you know, a, um, a, a bird that you see in the winter in some instances, like right now, ducks look completely different um, right now in their breeding plumage than they, than they do in, in their kind of non-breeding plumages, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where they don't have those kind of beautiful breeding feathers. And in the spring, you know, we see um, warblers or, or painted buntings or a bunch of migratory species that have, you know, beautiful, colorful feathers, and they have they molt all those those feathers at the end of the breeding season or, or before migration, um, uh, and then the rest of the year they're kind of you know not as colorful or maybe drab. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's a it's an important kind of feather maintenance right. um, aspect of their life, and uh, feathers, you know, they they aren't perfect all year round, so they have to just replace them. Mm-hmm. At, at and, and we call feathers as a whole on a bird plumage, you know, think of feather plumes. And so if you hear us use the word plumage, we're just talking about collectively all the feathers on a bird. So we have, an, we have another call. We have John Michael from Houghton. Um, John Michael, are you there? I am there, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a question. I have a friend who's a, a budding naturalist in the friends group. I get asked the questions, and uh, he's a great hunter and fisher, but he got himself a camera, and he started noticing things. And a few times he's gotten to the edge of my bird knowledge. And uh, one time recently he told me about watching in his backyard as woodpeckers, which I identified as downy woodpeckers, uh, pecked at uh, pecans, both native and uh, horticultural varieties of pecans. And they pecked into one side of the shell, 
And uh, so I guess the first half of my question was, uh, have you encountered downy woodpeckers uh, pecking into the side of and consuming pecan nut meat? Well, they, they certainly do, and they'll also do acorns um, and uh, just about any kind of a nut that, um, you know, there's, there's a good nugget of information inside there that, or, or, or food inside there that they'll eat, so they're going after that. So they can't, a downy can't swallow the whole pecan, um, no way. And so, because, the, yeah, the downy that you identified, that's our smallest woodpecker. And so he's he's not he's not big enough to eat a whole pecan. So he's got to peck into it to get that the the meat of the pecan out of the nut out of there. So yeah, I've seen I've seen that before. They they often have to take it and wedge it into some rough bark on the tree. I don't know what where he spotted it, but they can't do it when it's dangling from the sheath. So they 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 have to take it maybe to the ground or wedge it somehow where they can get the leverage to then chisel it open. Did he talk about that, how how it did it? He seemed to be able to get it open. In fact, he has video of it. Oh, cool. Uh, did it when, when it's in particular sheaths, depending on how open the, the outer husk is. Mm-hmm. But if it's too open, they, they can't, and they, they kind of hop around. Now, the more interesting part that's, that's almost deserving of a note or something um, was the food chain that followed. Where, uh, where he saw red-winged blackbirds and other blackbirds uh, consuming the apparently pre-cracked pecans on mm. the ground. Okay. We've gotten everything, everything short of the fatal shot that shows a pecan falling from the woodpecker to the red-winged blackbird. Oh, the red-winged blackbird perused the ground, and he has good video and, and, and shots of them eating the already pecked open shells. Have you seen red-winged blackbirds peck through the shells? No. Would you imagine they... I have not seen that. I, didn't, I guess I didn't well, think they were strong enough to do that, but apparently they are. I think it's the woodpeckers that are that are pre-cracking. Pecans. Yeah. So when we get the, when we get the golden shot, you'll you'll hear. Oh, that's it. neat. So, yeah. Th- thanks, I yeah. Thanks, John Michael. This is exactly what we we're talking about earlier with the pop-up blind. Um, I don't know how he was hidden, but this is exactly the kind of discoveries one would make if they were in a pop-up blind in their yard. They'd they'd see the the most unusual things, and well, those are yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's supposed to be done. So. Yeah. All right. Okay, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. You're listening to Bird Calls. We only have a few minutes left. If you have a question for our guest, Alex Matthews, 800-552-8502. So, Alex, I've got a question. Is how, how do birds help rid themselves of pes- pesky ectoparasites and ectosymbionts? What, what, what are the things that birds can do to help themselves? Um, yeah, so some there's a couple different couple different things that they can do um one of the biggest things that birds that birds do in general just as a way to to clean their feathers um is what's called preening um so if you see a bird kind of reach down behind sort of um kind of towards its back and then rubbing its uh bill across its feathers that's what that's what we call preening um they're they're picking up some oil from a gland that's on their rump um, called their, their preen gland or uropygial gland um, and, and kind of squeezing out some oil and then rubbing that oil on, on their feathers. Um, so through that preening process, they may be able to, to preen off some ectoparasites, um, kind of like a comb. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they would either preen themselves, um, you know, literally comb off the, the ectoparasites from uh, using their bill from off their feathers. Um, 
there's some instance there's some places on a bird that it can't reach itself um so it can't really preen its head or its neck mm-hmm. um so sometimes birds will um uh, exhibit allo preening where one individual will preen another individual mm-hmm. um kind of clean off the 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 head and neck feathers of of maybe their mate or something um birds also use their feet to scratch off ectoparasites so um they can if you've seen birds kind of scratch the back of their head there that may be an indication that they're trying to scratch off ectoparasites um there's also those um related to the feet there's also the pectinate claws um on some on some individ- on some species of birds um there's there may be some it's it's on the foot and it it, it literally looks like it's one of the um toes that kind of that looks like a a hair comb mm-hmm. um and we're not really sure if that if that is sort of an adaptation to having fewer parasites or, or combing off fewer parasites but there there's a lot of tests uh, kind of studies being done um, looking at those relationships. So um, a lot of times it's preening, but birds will also use dust baths. So if you see them kind of rolling around in, in, in a dirt pile, they're, they're, they could be trying to remove parasites. Or um, uh, There's also the, the interesting behavior of anting, um, mm-hmm. where birds will go sit on an anthill um, or pick up ants and put them on their feathers, and then the ants will... Uh, either remove the the parasites themselves, or they produce this um, what is it the f- uh, formic acid mm-hmm. that, that ants kind of release, and that and that acts as sort of an insecticide that that kills ectoparasites as well. So just the ants being present on the birds um, releases that insecticide all over themselves. So mm-hmm. um, and there's not as much known about that, but I think it's pretty clever. Uh, yeah, that's a clever way to get rid of parasites. That is neat. I, I've never tried it. I don't think I'm gonna yeah. anting. That is. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to mistake one. But the the alloprening, you know, you know, couples are often alloprening. They don't realize it. Oh, honey, you have cookie on your mouth. Let me get it off or out of your beard. So that's alloprening, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the exact same, exact same thing. So we got a call. I don't think he's on the line. He. It's Jerry from Shreveport asks to you, what makes a warbler a warbler? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that a, that's a toughie. That is a really tough question. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't really know how to answer that one. I, I have hit my, <laughs> met my match with, with, with what makes a warbler a warbler. Um, how, how, do, how would you think well, of answering I th- that, Cliff? I think that some people are familiar with the, the verb to warble, and maybe they're thinking, you know, it's making a, a warbling sound, and, and certainly the warblers do, but it, warbling is not restricted to warblers. Um, right. And so the, the, the birds you studied were all New World warblers because there's several different families and groups of birds yeah. that are called warblers all over the planet, but... But yours are, are, I think, the best, and uh, yeah, we're so I, lucky yeah, in, in North America to have them. So, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. There, that, I mean, there's there's about there's like a hundred and maybe a hundred and fifteen New World wood warblers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're you know a relatively um, recently diverged family. They have a lot of different ecologies. Um, they they are really well known for sort of understanding ecological um, 
questions like how species coexist in the same area. You know, I mean, we you can find lots of warblers um, at one time. You know, even in Pecan Park, I, I know in Nacogdoches that during migration you can get 20, 20 or 25 species yeah. of warblers all at the same time. Yeah. So they're a really interesting family um, of birds. But, yeah, maybe maybe the the warbling sound but i but it's definitely not unique to 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 warblers right right and yeah. and i think texas has 50 or 51 species recorded and probably louisiana here where i'm sitting has just almost as much there's probably a couple species yeah. that texas has like fantail warbler that um that has not been recorded in louisiana so yeah it's yeah. a it's just a really diverse group very colorful very sought after by bird watchers and you're really lucky to have uh, handled them. And, and you, yeah. you were talking yeah. earlier about the three big, uh, big things in a bird's life. And I was going to add a fourth one for the mm-hmm. female prothonotary we lovingly named Taylor Swift. She, <laughs> she had an ordeal where she was in your hand and you're in your mist net. And that was a biggie for her, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, all of, you know, and then, yeah, for, for birds, they have migration, molting, yeah. breeding, and then dealing with with uh, With Alex uh, Matthews. Yeah. Well, Alex, we've run out of time. And I really, well, I really want to thank you. Again. It goes quick, doesn't it? I really want to thank does. you for coming back on and telling us about all these important little critters that we don't even see, but we need to know about. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Cliff. I had a great time. I'm, thank you. I'm happy, happy to get to do it. All right. Appreciate it. So we're going to close with a conservation tip, and it's called Support Public Radio and Public Television. What we learn about nature, science, and the outdoor world is often relayed to us through public radio and public television. If you'll allow me to toot my own horn, you can't beat nature shows like this one heard over radio waves or seeing on TV, for, exa- for example, David Attenborough describing some amazing creature that was filmed in a remote part of our planet. If you enjoy enriching your life with radio and television, remember that NPR and PBS rely on the public for financial support. Please help keep this show, Bird Calls, on the air by donating to Red River Radio. Consider the next pledge drive on this station when there's a one-to-one challenge match, which will double your contribution. Moreover, if you are a business you know can go a step further, consider underwriting the show. The best things in life are not always free, and that includes public radio and public television. Show your support and help keep these things alive. Do it so you can continue learning about nature and do it for the birds. So that concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackle, Ford resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. Thanks so much to our phone-in guest, Dr. Alex Matthews. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's two sound files of a red-headed woodpecker were recorded by Ross Gillardi and Peter Bozeman and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for this woodpecker on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. One more time, redriverradiomail at gmail.com. 
Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, March 12th. And remember, do it for the birds.